85%. That's how much New York State has to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. One of the major pathways to this reduction will be the state's cap and invest program that is being designed as we speak. It will cap and reduce emissions over time, auction off the rights to emit, set up a trading system for those rights, and generate billions of dollars to be invested in the energy transition and to offset the cost of that transition for some New Yorkers. This is a big deal. And this will not only be a crucial tool to reduce emissions, but may well be one of the biggest government-driven changes to our economy in the foreseeable future. Hello, I'm Andrew Rhine, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission, and thanks for joining us for another episode of What's the Data Point? Today, I will talk with two of our state's top environmental leaders, Doreen Harris, president and CEO of the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, and Basil Segos, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Environmental Protection. We will not only talk about cap and invest, but delve into what I call the renewable energy generation gap, offshore wind, the $500 billion New York may spend economy-wide for the energy transition and resiliency, and the $4.2 billion environmental bond act, and even more. I hope our conversation helps give you a clearer view of what the future looks like for the state of New York's environmental policy and its impacts. But until next time, when you hear a public official talk about a policy, talk about a program, or make a proposal, always remember to ask, what's the data point? Thank you all for coming, and thank you, too. Thank you. Great now, to be as, here. As I said, so what time? Is it 1 or 1.30? You have a public comment on the... Uh, uh, on the cap and invest system. I can't remember which time it is. At 3.30, I think the bids are due on offshore wind. So you're starting your day with us, and we're honored to do it. Um, these are two busy, busy people. So thank you very much for, for doing this. Thank you. Um, you guys are in charge of, of achieving incredibly ambitious environmental goals. But I don't think is fun fundamentally appreciated is what you are working on might well be the biggest economic intervention to affect New York's economy in the next 20 years. People don't realize how, how big this is, um, you know, outside maybe the environmental community, and it's really important. And five years ago, CBC did a report getting greener, um, recommended economy-wide strategies, flexibility in purchasing and generation, given the rapid technological advances and cost changes, which we're in the middle of right now, and focusing on the most cost-effective strategies. We'll talk about this today. So on the energy piece, transition, we need to generate, transmit, store, purchase, and strengthen the grid upon which all this you know, is on so that we can actually be in a, a totally di different system. But let's start with the generation part. Because I'm old. <laughs> We generate this much today, we need to double it by 2030, double it again, these are renewables, by 2040 roughly. I call it the generation gap, that's the old part. Um, so we have a lot to do. <clears throat> and we're, a lot is riding on offshore wind. And as we've seen right now, as I mentioned, rebidding the contracts, you know, you had 10 billion of contracts and the vendors came back and said, you know, supply chain, inflation, a number of things are more expensive and so we're rebidding. There's a lot going on in this area. So what are we learning about offshore wind and how is it affecting our strategy? Let's start there. All right. It's the kind of day caffeine would be a, my friend, I think. So uh, I, uh, we're, we're awfully glad to be here and, and specifically want to thank CBC for hosting us and Andrew for the, the concept. Um, we've 
the two of us have, have certainly been on the road for a number of years, essentially since our climate law was passed. And to your point, well before that, um, New York has really been on the vanguard of this transition. And I would say it did get kicked into high gear when our climate law was passed in 2019. And we set it to work, um, I would say, to answer a fundamental question as co-chairs of our Climate Action Council, which is, what does it take? What does it take to get from here to there? Goals in law are one thing, but the actual on the ground needs to implement that law is very much where the two of us are today and certainly where the state is as well. And I'd say the answer for New York is not that different than the answer for so many other economies looking at these issues. And I'd say it is also very important to know that as a leader in implementing this law, a lot of eyes are on the state of New York um, and, and the ability of this state to execute on, on this transition. So I say this because the answers for New York, to your point, Andrew, are very much uh, focused on the grid. Um, we are going to rely ever more so on the grid. That grid is a grid that is historically underinvested in. That is something we don't talk enough about, is that we need investments in our electric system no matter what. Um, but in the case of a transition like this, we really need to rely ever more so on both renewable resources and zero emission resources of various sorts. But we also need to build out that grid, to your point, roughly doubling its capacity, changing the peak of that system from a summer to a winter peak. Big deal. This is a big deal. And it really all starts um, not only with the investments in the grid itself, which speaking of people learning from us, New York is implementing transi this transition from a transmission perspective in a really exciting and impressive way. But from a generation perspective, you're absolutely right. Our current focus is on the renewable resources that we need to build out um, to get from here to there. Um, offshore wind is certainly a central aspect of doing so. You know, just to give you an order of magnitude, um, when we reach our nine gigawatt offshore wind goal, that would serve about 30% of New York's electric load. So it's a big deal. Um, we need this to be a successful policy, and, and ultimately we have seen a year in which despite what I would say are extraordinary uh, series of black swan events, um, we have found ourselves in a position where clearly Governor Hochul and NYSERDA and DEC as implementers of this law with our other state partners have stood behind that goal um, very clearly. So we made quick work of, of really publishing um, a 10-point plan with the governor that we are now executing on. And one of the steps of that 10-point plan is to continue our work apace. Um, the challenges that we know the industry is facing are not unique to offshore wind. Pretty much everything that we are building and doing today is impacted by global markets, um, by inflation, by interest rate, by supply chain issues. But I'd say, as I said, New York is, all eyes are on New York and the ways in which we have responded to reset this industry in light of those challenges is something that others are following. And, you know, we have activity up and down the seaboard and we read about it every day. So what you've seen over the last year with, with costs and all these trends that, you know, and supply chain, that, as you said, 
is it affecting our strategy how much we invest versus maybe purchase somewhere else or you know onshore and solar are we changing the mix because of this or are we still going in the same way and what are the increased costs going to how's that going to change what happens well the there is a tangible offshore wind goal for the state, nine gigawatts by 2035. At this moment, we don't have a specific goal for land-based renewables. I'd say, importantly, the Public Service Commission has kicked off a proceeding looking at how we achieve a zero emission grid by 2040. So that's going to be looking at the contribution of resources like uh, renewable natural gas, uh, hydrogen, uh, nuclear power, and, and others, and of course the extent to which uh, renewables will contribute in 2040. The reality is that we knew that this wasn't going to be a straight line, uh, certainly to 2050, but as we are learning even to 2030. So our job really is to navigate the challenges um, that we see with a way in a way that keeps our eyes on these goals, but also, to your point, does so in a manner that is consistent with the principles of this transition, one based in market growth, market expansion, cost reduction, competition, and ultimately an expanding industry that can really bring us the best projects um, for New Yorkers. And one of the C's in your C's, I was wondering if it was going to come up, but you know more about this obviously a billion times than I do, collaboration. Up and down, you know, we have New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, all are active, and the latter three have an MOU. On the offshore piece, are you, is there collaborative opportunities to reduce risk and reduce cost? Yeah, I certainly for years uh, much was made about uh, competition among the states uh, for specifically in offshore wind, but generally um, in, in the world of decarbonization. I think there's uh, not much truth to that idea. Of course, there's healthy competition. We want to we want to bring as much to New York as we possibly can. But this is not a movement New York is going to be successful in if we are going it alone. We work with these states all the time. The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is a great example of a way in which we find ourselves decarbonizing the electricity sector together. But increasingly so, um, the challenges New York faces are shared, um, certainly on the East Coast and beyond. So we find ourselves in a better position to collaborate on areas like supply chain development, like transmission planning, and like ultimately industry building that we can do better together. And should we be collaborating on some of those procurements as well at this point in time? Well, the New England states actually are, as we speak. There's a joint uh, RFP by Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island um, that is on the mm -hmm. street. Um, we obviously coordinate internally on these right, right. things. There, you know, there's questions as to whether New York should, should join others in procurements. I think a more natural connection for New York would probably be New Jersey, some, from a geographic perspective, but uh, certainly something we're watching and, and investigating. So let's bring the commissioner... Um, in and, and slightly switch topics here. You know, one of our, ch you know, we're the budget commission. We like to have budgets for things. And one of our challenges, you know, as we were looking at the bond act going back 15 months or 16 months when we were thinking about this was, you know, in the world that we'd all like to achieve, we'd have a needs assessment and we'd have a plan knowing that we have to be flexible on that plan because things change. But we'd have a plan and we'd say, oh, here's the bond act, here's what it satisfies, here's how we should allocate it because we have these priorities. We don't really have that yet. You've been entrusted with $4.2 billion um, to allocate. 
where are we in that process and how are you, what are your criteria for allocating those? Andrew, thank you. Morning, everybody. Great to be here with you and Doreen. By the way, longest serving commissioner since 2015. Shh, come on, please. Don't tell anybody that. I don't know if that's a, that's a badge of honor, but uh, it's, it says, I think. I, I consider I, it something that we should appreciate on your dedication, and I'm serious. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, certainly have the stamina. This, this is a great job, and a former DEC commissioner over here, Pete Granis, uh, who did a great job as well before me. Um, so um, if I can back up to the very beginning, when, sure. you, when you talked about the sort of the 20-year uh, significance of this thing that we're doing on acting on climate in New York. You're right. I think this is, from an affirmative perspective, one of the biggest things that uh, the state will undertake, certainly over that time period, to sort of shift our economy from where we are today to one that's more sustainable. Why are we doing this? I think we are uh, taken uh, and persuaded by the, the science of what the world is going to deliver New York, right? Over that time period, we see uh, an incredible potential impact to New York. I think we're already feeling it. You know, you look worldwide at the impacts of climate change, sea level rise, uh, some more severe weather, just the impacts on health economies around the world, the destabilizing effect on migrants, on democracy, on many big things that ultimately impact this 11th largest economy in the world, or 10th, depending on where you are, um, of New York. So what can we do from a preparedness perspective? How can we prepare our state to be a to adapt to the new normal? How can we prepare to take advantage of the new economy, right, over the next uh, 20 years, which is what the Climate Act truly instructs us to do, is get our economy reshaped, take, to take advantage of the new technologies and the new uh, trade winds behind, uh, behind renewable energy and a sustainable approach to, to the economy. Um, and, and to the point of preparing the state, right, where are we on, on readying the state? I think, you know, we, are, we have a great head start in mean, the Bond Act that came to New York uh, two years ago, voters said yes, seven out of 10 voters. You don't get that often, saying yes to something like that, very bipartisan across the state, uh, saying $4.2 billion should be spent on preparing our state for the new normal. Um, and uh, we have been, we started the last year uh, operationalizing that and starting to get that money out the door. Uh, recognizing that we need to make investments all over the state. On Friday, or on Monday this week, I told you, Andrew, I was on Fire Island looking at how, you know, sea level rise has dramatically, and, and severe weather has dramatically shrunk the, the beach there, which no longer exists, right? We put, feds put all this money into dunes and protective infrastructure that simply doesn't exist anymore because of severe weather. Um, the same can be said for Lake Ontario, Buffalo, a $100 million rainstorm in, in West Point last year. Um, there are so many ways in which this money can be used to protect the state. It wouldn't have happened without the governor and the legislature and the voters coming together on this. Um, we're in the early stages of it, and we need to understand that the $4.2 billion has to leverage other pots of money. And that's really important because $4.2 billion would be gone in an instant if we just used it on a one-to-one -one basis on projects. We need to look for ways to leverage federal dollars, local dollars, private dollars, uh, to adjust building codes over time, the energy codes over time, so that we're building more smartly, to use uh, a new proposal that the governor's put forth on, on in this year's budget on buyouts and creating buffers around built areas. I mean, all of us in this, in this room should be concerned about that, the impact of not doing this the right way, uh, because it means our real estate, all of our investments, our infrastructure, um, downtown uh, Manhattan, more disadvantaged communities around the state. Everyone will suffer if we don't do it right. So the 4.2 has to go a long way to, uh, to fixing those problems. Superstorm Sandy, $36 billion impact to New York. 
um, $50 billion potential impact over the next 10 years if we don't do the right kinds of resiliency investments. So uh, that's what the Bond Act is, is helping us to get at. And uh, we are um, now looking at two rounds out the door, money for wastewater infrastructure. We have money going out for, uh, for school buses, of course, that Doreen uh, can talk about. Um, we are going to be working on schools, of course. The governor is now identifying some critical projects as well for, for Bond Act spending. Um, so my hope is that we're going to have a five-year period of incredible investment in New York's landscape and that ultimately will leave all of us uh, more protected than we are right now. Thank you. Do you. Our thesis is that if we had a broader plan that was more comprehensive, it would help guide this. Because mm -hmm. as you say, Governor has priorities, we're doing schools, all these, there's no shortage of important things we have to do. And you, especially in your role, have to clean up and deal with a lot of <clears throat> problems all the time. You're trying to actually um, prevent the problems and respond before. Um, would the state do well to have a more comprehensive plan that could guide these investments over time? Because it's not just this. Mm -hmm. We're in it for the long haul. We'll get to cap and invest in a second. To, we, yeah. we need to figure out how to prioritize things because there's no shortage of need, and money is not unlimited. Yeah, no, no the, doubt. The, as the governor said, you can't spend like there's no tomorrow, and tomorrow comes. Yeah, that's perfectly said. And absolutely, yes, planning is, is essential. And we've been planning for years. I mean, we, uh, when I first started with the governor's office 10 years ago, we did the 2100 commission, which looked out, probably some experts here in the room were part of that commission. We looked out to 2100, what does the state need to do to begin preparing for that, for that new normal? We started making investments consistent with that planning. Now, the new, the new normal has changed. Ten years later, now we're looking at more aggressive, uh, more aggressive investments are needed to, to protect the state. So that's one thing the governor talked about this year, is requiring all of us to begin planning more aggressively. So as we have these dollars, as we have these investments, as we put out the available dollars for, uh, for grants around the state, we are turning to the public for a public comment on that as well and making the public part of the solution on how we spend those dollars. So would certainly encourage CBC and all of you to weigh in when we, when we identify a pot of money for investment, for resiliency investment, that all of you weigh in and help us ensure that we're doing that in a way that's consistent with a long-term strategy. Thank you. So I do have to shout out to, you know, the work of CBC is the work of a great staff, a research staff led by Anna Champany. Anna's probably around here. You can raise your hand for those of you who don't know who actually does and leads our work. Um, and also by Stephen Marcus, who wrote this great piece, Keys to a Cap and Invest Design that's Earth and Economy Focused. It doesn't, not only has a beautiful cover, but it's actually so clear, and I learned so much between that and your website. I've really learned stuff. And a few other things that Stephen tells me I have to read. Um, so let's talk about <clears throat> Cap and Invest. As I said five years ago, we said there should be an economy-wide strategy. Final scoping plan said so, and now you're in, in the cap and invest design getting feedback world. And this is an economy-wide strategy using market mechanisms to reduce greenhouse gases in the most cost-effective way possible, raise some money to do other investments, and that you know, speaks to this is, in a certain sense, this might be the biggest economic inter intervention, depending how you implement it, that we'll see. This is huge, a huge port. Um, portion of the activity and done well, you can really use those cost-effective market mechanisms to reduce greenhouse gases. Done poorly, this thing I've learned about called leakage, 
You send your jobs, your emissions out of state, and you increase costs. So New Yorkers are paying more, there are fewer jobs, and the emissions still happen, they just happen elsewhere. And we know that some, there aren't actually walls at the borders that keep emissions from traveling between states. So it's incumbent to do this well, and you're in that design pro, um, process right now. What is the design plan, and what are the key features that'll make sure that we actually achieve what we want to? Maybe I'll start and then kick it over sure. to my colleague here. Um, I think everything you just mentioned is front and center in our mind right now. <clears throat> Certainly when the governor announced her in, intent to roll out a capital <clears throat> strategy last year, that's what we very much talked about. Affordability, right? This has to be an affordable program. First and front and center, uh, we need to make sure that we're not, uh, we're not overburdening New Yorkers and businesses, right? That's number one. Number two, linkability, recognizing that we can use this law uh, and the, maybe the platforms of Reggie and the efforts of other states uh, to create partnerships outside our borders, right? I mean, it's stronger if we can go in this together. Uh, so we're very much designing and thinking about designing a program through regulation that would be linkable to other states and their ambitions. Um, protecting businesses that are, are trade exposed in New York. Right? That's very important as well. I mean, there are going to be some businesses in New York that have emissions that we need to find a way to protect here through this law so that we don't have the leakage issue which is a major uh, uh, consideration of, of, uh, of the governors. We also need to be able to raise enough money to make a difference, right? You can't have just an affordable program that doesn't raise enough dollars to make the investments we need. Uh, this is ultimately cap and invest, creating a cap on emissions, which declines over time, generates revenue that we put into uh, the clean energy economy. Uh, so um, for us, this is, well, it's obviously required by law. We have to have an economy-wide uh, program the law requires it. Uh, the Climate Action Council arrived at this after looking at many other models um, and recommended this. We're moving ahead with it. We announced certain parts of it uh, conceptually in December. We're in the middle of a webinar. This is webinar week. <laughs> I know you all are excited <clears throat> to hear that. Um, when we were talking before, it's like, oh, tomorrow is the big webinar. We should have timed <laughs> that better. Tomorrow is, a, is an important webinar. What's the big webinar tomorrow? Well, to, yes, uh, two days ago, we did a webinar on effectively explaining the program. We have another one today. And then tomorrow, uh, we'll be releasing an analysis of the benefits and the cost of the program. So everyone's been asking, what, what would this cost? So I'd sort of encourage everyone to log on tomorrow and be, be part of that. We, we want to hear feedback on and, this. And yeah. Can you just break this down? Because you talked about affordability and cost before. And just so I understand, because there are a lot of different... When we think about costs, and we're simple people, there's <clears throat> the cost to have the right to admit, there's the cost to businesses, both in their utilities and other cost factors, and then there's the cost to residents. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the cost and what we'll see tomorrow, what, what, what should we be looking forward to understanding more about? I'm just trying to... Yeah, I'll out. give just a little bit of a preview of the framework you can expect. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the analysis that, that will be presented tomorrow and, and supported by a very big document that your team can very much enjoy dissecting. Um, okay, is, Stephen, over the weekend. <laughs> is really looking at a fundamental question, which is how big of a program um, might, what are the, I'll, I'll call it, what are the trade-offs um, that one looks at when one designs a cap and invest program? And, and by that, I mean, obviously, there are um, ways in which we can enforce uh, caps, i.e. limits, on that very fundamental question of cost. Um, but in doing so, obviously, we then have uh, changes as to how effective the program is or how much, I should say, it contributes to the Climate Act goals. Um, 
Capit Invest is one tool in the toolbox. It is a big tool. I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that it's, uh, it's, it's de minimis, but I would say that's what we really have to look at is, is what are the benefits and costs of different types of implementation of Cap and Invest. And in doing so, we, we made our best attempt um, to analyze this from multiple perspectives because each New Yorker would experience a Cap and Invest program differently in that we all sort of live and work in different ways. Um, those in the city obviously have different costs related to transportation and different means of transportation as an example than those upstate. Really same for heating and, and cooling and beyond. And so we, we worked analytically to look at how various, type, various ways of implementing Cap and Invest would have implications on, on an average New Yorker. I think it is also important, and it needs to be said, that the foundation of the climate law is really based in, in the framework of achieving a world in which we are focusing on disadvantaged communities across the state in the first instance. And so the governor's principles that Commissioner Segos laid out really allow us to say we need to make sure that we are not burdening low to moderate income New Yorkers in, in a way that places their, uh, this topic of affordability at the center. So last year, we created the Consumer Climate Action Account, which is intended to bring 30% of those proceeds back into the pockets of New Yorkers. And so our analysis also looks at this by income class, um, because we want to make sure that we are holding harmless those New Yorkers that are the focus of the climate law. So, so it really can be implemented in a lot of different ways. What we wanted to bring to the fore was an analysis in addition to the frameworks for Cap and Invest that can bring more, more feedback to us as we develop the regulations. And will we also learn, based on this, how much money might be raised? Is there a model to say how much yes. is going to be raised? Yeah, we haven't talked a lot about the invest side of this, but it's important to note that we do very much see cap and invest as an engine uh, for the investments needed to do just what we're looking for, which is to bring down costs, to scale these markets, allow people to access heat pumps and EVs and renewable energy and more in an affordable way. So over the course of the year, we certainly will, in parallel, be putting forward, um, I'd say, materials that will be useful to help us look at not only what we might be investing in, but also what scale that might be mm -hmm. and what process that may be um, implemented through. Um, clearly, those are critical decision points, as well as launching the program. And I want to drill down more broadly on the investments, but... Quickly, there's a bill in the legislature, I don't know if it's conceived of or introduced, sorry for not knowing the status, but to disallow trading and banking of credits, which from our point of view would totally hobble the incentives of the program to get those cost-effective um, reductions. Is our view of that potential hobbling, is that correct? And what are the prospects of your hands being tied from implementing the program well by something like that? Now, we're not supposed to weigh in on legislation when it's pending. Um, let's just say that we are going to be working with the legislature over the course of the next few months um, as they conceive of a path forward, right? We believe we have the authority now 
through uh, the existing laws to create a program in regulation, mm -hmm. right? We don't need further authority to create the program. We needed to work with the legislature last year and probably in the future on how we spend the money, but not on creating the program. So the legislature's talked about a different program. Of course, some, some legislators have advanced the bill uh, for, for consideration. Uh, we see that there's some decent overlap with, with our objectives, um, and there's some places where our proposed program, our soon-to-be-proposed regulations, would differ from that. We mm -hmm. agree that trading is important, and there's some things that we, um, we believe we would need to secure in order to create a good program. I know that CBC has weighed in on that uh, yeah, no, extensively. I mean, I, you, you, We've talked about trading. Yep. I was glad to, you know, we glossed over, but, you know, in terms of making it broader geographically, leveraging our relationships yeah. and doing that designing so you can do that, right. these are all the things we think are actually, not only we recommend them, some of them are essential to actually being useful in the big picture because there are people who believe you shouldn't trade, you shouldn't bank, you should just set that level and ratchet down. And that's where we could... Just think about it graphically. You ratchet down and those jobs and emissions go else. You know, you right. just think about it. This is a great opportunity. And as you say, you can design it different ways. How big it is, we'll, we'll, we'll learn more about. But to, to the point that you made earlier, we have to design this right. I mean, there are many other uh, entities and jurisdictions that are, that are doing cap and vest like programs. We can learn from them for sure. But we want to get this right, and that is in part going to be achieved through listening to the public, right? So we're in a pre-proposal phase right now launching a concept that then will impact how we draft regulations, which would mm -hmm. go for future public compact impact. So we really do encourage everyone in the room and, and you and your team, Andrew, to, to weigh in at this stage because we need, to, we need to find out what that sweet spot is when it comes to the concept of trading, when it comes to protecting disadvantaged communities, when it comes to all of the investments we need to make. Um, we need a successful program, and that doesn't, it's, those aren't hatched within closed doors. They have to be hatched in an open, transparent way. Now, that feedback loop usually ends up with something more yes. practical and implementable <laughs> as well as supported. Um, the final scoping plan, you know, it was more of a menu blueprint. It wasn't that detailed plan, you know, that, of course, we kept on advocating for and will continue. Um, but, you know, in the economics of that, you know, the gross spending might be economy-wide. This isn't just government. Between now and 2050, like 500 billion offset by 200 billion of, of savings. That's whether it's 500 billion or 300 billion, you do not shift that money in economy without having massive, massive impacts. Um, um, jobs, rates, um, whatever. Do you have estimates of what the rates for your average resident and for businesses will be and what those impacts will be? Well, as we advance every... The Climate Act will be achieved not through one action, but through a series of actions over time. And, and I'd say, of course, the majority of the spending in the electric grid is currently advanced through the Public Service Commission yes. um, and through orders and the implementation thereof. And in doing so, believe me, every single cost is scrutinized for these transmission projects, for the generation projects, for the building decarbonization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the commission actually annually does look at the topic of cost, um, and the staff presents um, a, a look, uh, you know, for their consideration as such. You know, when we think about where we are here today um, as it relates to cap and invest, we're looking at what we would say is a rational shift um, in the ways in which those cost burdens are borne. 
we are clearly wanting to rely ever more so on the electric grid. So any rational person would say, who should be paying for this transition? Electric ratepayers, right? That's a little bit out of alignment with the behavior, right, that we are pushing. So cap and invest in many ways allows us to take this concept of polluters paying, right, and the consumers of that pollution paying for the transition. But this is not, I want to be clear, it's not going to happen through one action and it's not going to happen in one year or two years or three years. This is a situation in which there will be multiple decades of phasing one down and one up to realign our economy, as you say, consistent with the future. Um, the term that is used is mid-transition, and that's very much where we are. We have a world in which we are relying, right, on the systems of the past as we plan for the systems of the future. And, and that's why we need to get this right. But, of course, you know, the fake economist in me always knows that costs are in the one instance paid and in the ultimate instance born mm -hmm. by someone, different parts in different parts of the stream. And that's always thinking those through will allow you to start to identify what the effects are on jobs, on businesses, on families. And you said, there's, as you said, there's a huge focus, important focus on EJ communities, um, you know, lower income people, making sure they don't disproportionately bear the, bear, bear the brunt of it. But part of it at times from a political motivation, I mean, this is, you know, since you're not politicians, we'll talk about them secretly. From political motivations at times, it's trying to make sure everyone thinks it's free and, and, and no one feels anything. Mm. It feels like there's at times a distortionary effect because we believe, importantly, because the vast amount of this investment, we need to look at those cost-effective strategies. And we're concerned in the final scope. Cost-effectiveness has not been front and center on the front lines of discussion. Not necessarily not in your work, I'm not saying that, but on the front lines. And, and it's a concern that the motivation to hide the costs so that no one really feels this transition as you're talking about, because it's a massive transition. There are different pockets that are going to pay different things over time. But by trying to hide it, we're not going to actually make the most rational decisions. Is that a reasonable concern? Well, listen, I, I, I think we have to be very honest about the costs of climate change and exactly. cost of action. And that means communicating the true existing costs and the cost of, of, no, of the no action alternative. And I think, I, I tried to say this in, my, in my, uh, my opening to your first question, that New Yorkers are already bearing extraordinary costs right now. You could look at the statewide response costs and the costs of losing a village or a waterfront, uh, the cost of a city and the subway system being flooded. Uh, you could look at the cost of just one person who's got asthma, that's, that's because of a diesel emission, $50,000 a cost over, over a lifetime. I mean, the Climate Act requires us to take action, recognizing that science. Uh, yes, we are one state out of 50, and there are many other countries as well around the world. Um, but we know we have a lane right now. We have to adhere to it and advance a program that ultimately communicates the shift in costs, right? So we talk about that... Mm. One person who's got $50,000 lifetime expenses because of asthma. Mm -hmm. And now we're potentially at 2035, 2050, saving 1,500 people a year because of asthma deaths, premature deaths. So there's a lot of discussion to be held at a very high level about the costs and benefits of this. And then how that translates into the actual program itself needs to be hatched in a very transparent way. 
And that's why we've taken a slower approach. I mean, Doreen and I have been leading this now for since 2019 in a very open way, very transparent way. We were required by the law to advance an economy-wide program December 31st, 2023. We decided we are not going to get that done on time because we need to be responsible and draft a program, craft a program that is going to be successful and done in a transparent way. And that involves this webinar tomorrow, having the discussion about cost. And what time is the webinar again? Uh, what, one? One o'clock. One o'clock. Okay. One o'clock. Climate.nyw. We're going to have a test on Monday? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that's part of it, right, is having that conversation now, and then all of the feedback we get from these webinars, which we encourage people to, to give us feedback on that, then goes then into the actual program development through regulation, likely middle part of this year. So there will be uh, light shined on uh, cost-benefit program elements over the course of the next 12 months. Fantastic. Why don't I open it up for some trustee questions? And, and since Walter and I have been talking about this stuff for years, I'm going to defer to Walter. If you, do you have a first question? Because, you know, my text strings with Walter about this, these issues have, have been, in my mind, legendary. Walter. Okay. One is a fisher. Can you hear me? Yes. As a fisherman who fishes off Block Island frequently, I look at the five wind turbines. One seems to be permanently down. Two seem to be constantly broken. Of the two remaining, one runs about half the time, and one seems to run. I've looked for the output of it against the expectations. Can't find it. It gets buried in Worsted's documents. You're now opening up on Cox's Ledge. That's going. They threw back uh, two bids. You're rebidding today, which strikes me as a way to raise costs. What I get concerned about offshore wind is you made some political, de political decisions were made to put it 30 miles offshore in deeper water, which complicates construction, two longer transmission lines where you lose more power coming in, three, I'm a strong believer in climate change being abated by technological change going forward, and offshore wind there are major changes happening, floating, floating rather than fixed platforms can be brought in and fixed. I get concerned that we're building a dinosaur, and we're building 150 of them, and we're locking into huge costs, which ultimately the ratepayer, the taxpayer, and others are going to pay. Andrew raised the thought that jobs could leak out from higher costs. And, I, and it's really easy to say um, the impact of long-term climate change, but wouldn't it make more sense to let the 20 or 30, which are in the works, get up, seeing if they perform as expected, wait for technology to improve to make them more efficient, rather than quadrupling down on building a massive amount of these things and, and in the hope that costs will come down when it appears to be going another way. One other thing, <laughs> the European experiences, and they um, build offshore wind in, in less depth, which makes it a little bit easier. But the Germans said the wind didn't blow, the sun didn't shine. An energy expert told me, eh, that wasn't quite right. He said they underperformed. So shouldn't we be thinking of alternatives as putting going so hard and offshore wind, and shouldn't we be thinking perhaps deferring as a, in this rebid as a viable alternative to, ma to make sure we're on the right path? All right. 
Well, um, I'd be glad to speak after, but uh, you know, I, I'd say a couple of things. Um, one is that it is absolutely true that we do have to plan for a diversity of resources in the future. Like that is completely true, and, and I mentioned this proceeding from the Public Service Commission as a great example of the ways in which we're thinking about the necessary resources that our grid will need, right, to be reliable, um, resilient, and scaled um, toward these goals. And, and I'd say it, it is also true that New York benefits and very much benefits from one of the most robust processes for planning um, because there are very necessary checks and balances that are part of our planning processes. Um, the New York Independent System Operator is a great example of it, but the ways in which that we jointly plan, um, I would say, reflect a strong commitment to reliability <laughs> over the course of this transition such that we don't expect, um, based on all of these planning, to, we don't plan to be like Texas, as an example, with respect to some of the reliability issues that they see, in my view, as a result of poor planning. Um, on the topic of these resources, listen, there are definitely resources that will contribute in 2040 and 2050 that are likely not deployed at scale right now. And, and we had to say that with a very straight face through the Climate Action Council process because it is also very much why we set these goals, because we know the market will bring forth solutions um, if we say this is where we're heading and this is what we will be looking for. So bring on your zero emission dispatchable resources. Um, these are very much part of the future. But as for offshore wind, you know, one of the main reasons uh, we started with a, I'd say a far less ambitious goal, 2.4 gigawatts. There's some people in this room uh, here who were part of that goal setting. I won't make eye contact, but the reality <laughs> is we are definitely not um, early movers in the world of offshore wind, whereas there are some technologies that are very nascent. When we saw the scale and deployment in Europe um, and the cost compression in Europe as such, we knew this was not a risky proposition per se for the state to begin to scale up past the 2.4 gigawatts and beyond. Uh, but I would agree. We definitely need to be well aware of the generation profile. Um, that needs to be part of that robust planning process um, that, is, you know, that I would say is implicit with a successful transition and the diversity of resources that will be necessary um, to get us from here to there as well. Thanks. Um, other questions? Peter, I see you back here, and I'm keeping my eyes open for the next one because I'm not very good at keeping my eyes open. Go, Peter. Yeah, the sense I get is that the plans you're discussing rely increasingly on intermittent sources, whether it's wind or solar or the like. And can you be specific about how your planning process is focused on assuring grid reliability so that we have electricity? when it's very cold, when it's very hot, and it might be dark, and the wind might not be blowing. Certainly, I mean, this is, this is, I would say, inherent within existing planning processes throughout the state, but ever more so with the transition. Um, we see, obviously, the, as I said, the New York Independent System Operator really looking at our, our reserve margins um, in a very careful way. 
in ways in which they have in indicated that there are challenges with this transition. As I said, this mid-transition is complicated. Um, they've said clearly we need the Champlain-Hudson Power Express project to be operating um, to address potential issues in, in the city as an example. Um, so this is how the system works. This is how the process works. And ultimately, we are planning for this reliable grid of the future through decisions like those that I just um, described. We also, by the way, are planning for economic load growth. Um, I think it's important to note upstate is a great example of, as, as you look into the future, it's not just the electrification load, but it's the economic load that we are planning for as well. And that, so that is literally part of, of a smart, multi-year, both near and long-term planning process. Anything that I don't want to cut you off before I turn to Margo. Margo. Thank you. Uh, Hold on, let's turn you on. My question is about EV charging mm -hmm. and specifically about NYSERDA's Charge Ready 2.0 program, um, which is the rebate program <laughs> to incentivize the installation of EV chargers. I think there are, it, it's a great program, obviously. Um, but there are two concerns. One is that the amount, which is about $30 million, is not sufficient to help the state uh, meet its goals. Um, and two, and perhaps more importantly to your point about long-term planning, that it's focused on level two charging, mm -hmm. which, for anyone who doesn't know, takes a car about between three and five hours to charge from zero to, to full versus level three charging, um, which can take a car 30 minutes to charge up and get back on the road. And there's some concern that we really should skip right to level three DC charging in order to encourage user adoption and also to encourage the uh, investment in the infrastructure that'll be necessary from the utility providers to support that level of charging and make this more of a reality for the city and for the state. And I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I would say in general, the, the charging investments that we're making across the state certainly do need to scale up. I, I, would, I would completely agree with you on that. One thing that, that we are very pleased to see is some federal investments coming our way in the DC fast charging network through the NEVI funding that has come to the state. Um, we are hard at work uh, deploying those funds and, and specifically actually have our first installed uh, charger through that program as an example of a much larger scale. Um, as, as, as relates to the, the Charge Ready program, um, I, I would say, and, and specifically as an EV uh, driver myself, I think much is made about the need for DC fast charging. Um, that is, in fact, true in some instances. If I'm traveling down the thruway, I don't want to sit for four hours and wait for my car to charge, right? I want to be in and out in 20 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever, get my lunch and go. But I think there is a need, actually, for all of these technologies in this future. Um, people can drive to work. If there's a level two charger, it's just perfect to, to charge while you're there or at the library or the shopping mall or wherever you may be. But in reality, it really amounts to a smart scaling of, of various technologies to allow people to get you know, here, and the, here to there. Um, we have major investments um, underway also through the Public Service Commission 
in both the readiness for charging, right, the sort of make ready orders that have been issued, but also through NYSERDA and the utilities and the charging itself. But certainly I agree as to the need for scale. We did hit 10% EV sales last year, though. I'm saying it's, it's, it's definitely reached an inflection point in our state, and, and part of it is you know, providing that reliable charging network to support those sales. Other questions? I have one that I'm, I'm holding myself off of. David. Hold on, we'll give you a mic so we don't strain your voice. And then maybe it'll turn on. I'm going to make Sagos answer this one. Something about fish? Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can hear Fishing, what a fishing question? I'm from Brooklyn. I could have screamed, but that's all right. <laughs> Somebody, I think it was Doreen, uh, used the word nuclear a little bit ago. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I'd, <laughs> I'm not sure where to go with this, but... Um, <laughs> You know, it, it was the case that actually, obviously New York has an operating fleet of, of upstate nuclear generation, and, and through this proceeding that I've now, I think, mentioned four times, clearly the, there will need to be consideration as to their continued contribution toward the zero emission baseload that we, we benefit from as a state. What I was actually talking about was something that happened quite during our Climate Action Council process which was we actually saw major um, momentum from the federal government in the world of, uh, I'd say, advanced nuclear reactors, small modular reactors, and other means by which you can really be looking at the next generation of nuclear power generation. And so we made a call and said, we really want to look at what that would what, what would that be for the state? How, how would this federal leverage really um, impact us if we were to take advantage of it? So, of course, we ran another model because we like to do that. And it, and it revealed the fact that, that it is something that the state could actually benefit from. Um, again, same, same situation. We are not going to be the only, only entity driving uh, future, the future of nuclear. But when we see this federal leverage and we begin to see movement, both from a technology and a deployment perspective, our assessment would say that our, our cost-benefit analysis would actually improve. So I'd say, you know, this is nothing that we are running after, but rather something we are evaluating and planning for um, as relates to this, I say, myriad options that we will be exploring into the future. Thank you. Um... One second. I, I do want to drag in the commissioner for, uh, before. We haven't talked about coastal resiliency much. You and I were talking about Fire Island before and my yeah. experience of going one summer and having a beach and the next summer not having a beach and not being shocked that the federal government would invest $300 million and then there's still no beach. Where are we with coastal resiliency? What's our involvement in the HAT study, the Harbor and Tributary mm -hmm. study? And where, where is that process? And I just, uh, sorry to interrupt these questions, but I think that this is a critical thing I don't want to leave without. No, no, it's a, it's a really good and timely question. I mean, I've spent the better part of the last month uh, working on this issue with the governor's office, the governor self, uh, even being down on the coast on, on uh, Monday with her, uh, speaking about this exact point, right? Uh, sea level's rising. Storms are becoming more severe, more frequent, Right. Uh, and there's more erosion on the, on the seafront. So we, we have to do something about that. Um, it was laid bare when water started flowing into the, uh, the pit at World Trade Center, right, uh, back in 2012. 
that was a paradigm shift, I think, in many people's minds um, nationally, not just here in New York, that maybe things are changing a little bit. So we need to begin making those investments. And um, talking about inflection points, there was a bit of an inflection point for both the federal government side as well. And what do we do about the waterfront? What do we do about the coast? And how do we better prioritize um, infrastructure? And what is infrastructure? It's not always the wall, right? In some ways, it's infrastructure can be rebuilding the, the old infrastructure, which is beaches and shorelines and wetlands and everything else, and allowing New Yorkers and Americans to retreat from the shoreline, right? So that barrier islands are no longer necessarily heavily populated. This is not just a New York thing. This is all up and down the coast, uh, down to Florida even. But is in fact the barrier island, you're letting it move around, which is historically what it, what it did. Um, you get there in part by protecting existing infrastructure, but also enabling people to be bought out. And uh, we did that very effectively during, during the post-Sandy time. Now the governor is proposing to use some of this uh, Bond Act money to do that exact same thing. In the same token, we know that it's, again, a small amount of money in the grand scheme of things, but the federal government is also warming to that with some of their, their investments. So um, as the governor described it in a Q&A &A she did with the press when we were there together this week, she said, um, we have to do the short, medium, and long-term strategies all at the same time, right? We have to do the Band-Aid approaches when things are urgent and emergent. Uh, when beaches are gone, when dunes are gone, to protect infrastructure, and that means putting sand down. In the same token, it means advancing smart programs to allow people to retreat from the shoreline and plan for the new normal. So it's really an all-of-the-above all of approach. Uh, it entails working at every level of government. It's not just DEC or the Department of State here in New York. It's We're working very closely with the Army Corps, working very closely with uh, municipalities, leaders all up and down the coast. Um, and making sure, to, to the planning point, that the dollars, the limited dollars that we have are going into the right investments. Um, and it's going to take time. And unfortunately, we may not have the time because we are already seeing those impacts now. And that means catching up. That means playing catch up to the new normal. And I'll just go back as we're wrapping up to your transparency point again. Mm -hmm. And as the Budget Commission, we like mm -hmm. to see budgets. Are we really facing what we need to? What is our infrastructure need? What is our investment what we need? I would echo and amplify what you said is we need to face this and we need to decide what we're going to do. And the incrementalism might not be our friend um, when we could plan and say, okay, maybe we can't do certain things because this will be that big. And it's only getting bigger. I learn from you guys every day. Um, and it's only getting more urgent. Um, so, again, with that, you guys have a busy schedule. You're doing a lot everywhere. And I can't thank you enough for taking time to join us today. Give, give them uh, a little thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.